So, question for this week. It's a, the beginning question, really, and I suppose in lots of ways, it's what everything uh, builds on. It's the question, the starting point, is God real? It's a great question, isn't it? That is the beginning. As soon as we enter into any discussion uh, around faith, religion, we've got to ask the question, is God real? The first thing that I want to say is the reality is for me to think that I could stand up and answer that question and unequivocally persuade you that God is real, I would be deluded. Because the reality is that belief in God is a step of faith, because we can't prove it. However, there is a flip side to that. It's because we can't prove the existence of God, we also are faced with the reality that not believing in God is also a step of faith. That's an interesting kind of dilemma, isn't it? Everybody thinks believing in God is a step of faith. I want to suggest to you, actually, believing in God is a step of faith, yes. But not believing in God is also a step of faith. And yet, at the same time, these big questions are really important to us because they are momentous questions. They get to the very core of who we are as people. They ask really deep questions at key moments in our lives. We ask this question maybe at the point of danger. How many people ask the question or really want for the existence of God to be true at that moment of danger or at the point of tragic relationship loss? When somebody leaves us from this, this earth, we, we ask these questions Who am I? Where do I belong? Where am I going to? What about the issues of the pain that I'm suffering and the pain that I see all around me? There are moments not just in the negative when we ask the question, there are also moments in the positive, in those indescribable moments when we're face to face with the amazing creation that surrounds us, the cosmos that surrounds us. The beginning of new life, that moment of the first breath and the little cry, whether that's of a baby, whether that's of the amazing recreation of animals in this world, they touch us, don't they? There are moments where we think, wow, there's something incredible about the world that we live in. Is there something more? Here's some amazing numbers. I'm not an astronomer, but I'm told that there are 400 billion stars in the Milky Way, and our sun is 150 trillion miles from the center of our galaxy. Our sun is 150 trillion miles from the center of our galaxy. They're amazing numbers, aren't they? I don't even know how many zeros a trillion is, but it's big. There was some amazing news came out this week, however, that we now are given to understand with, I think it's the Hubble telescope, that there are actually two trillion galaxies in the universe, which is up to 20 times more than we first believed. 
20 times more than what we understood at the beginning of last week. Isn't that amazing? It's kind of, the universe is growing well. It's growing not necessarily because it's getting bigger, but because we're seeing more of it. It reminds me of a verse in the Bible, in Psalm chapter 8 and verse 34, where it says this, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? That's a real, that's an amazing verse, isn't it? I think we now think we're we're really smart (laughs) because we know that there's 20 times more galaxies out there than we first thought. We're really smart now. Uh, And maybe in another 200 years, people will look back on us and think that they didn't even scratch the surface. There are a thousand times, 20 times greater. For the ancients looking up at the sun and the moon and the stars and thinking, wow, that's amazing. Why is God bothered about us? That was their question back then. And now we ask the question, if we'd have asked it two weeks ago, we'd have known with the galaxies that we do understand, and we ask it today, and we still have the same question. God, why are you interested in us? I guess that's where I want to just start us off. A little introduction, an idea of where we get to with our first thoughts about God. I'm just going to pause and just quick check uh, whether we've got anything that… We've got a kind of an agreement. We've got a like this if there's no questions and a We've got a thumbs up. Okay, so I, this, is a, this is the first try. Let's see how it works. So, first question. Uh, is there another earth? If so, does this affect our salvation? That's anonymous. Um, that, that's helpful, actually, just to mention that. You can ask questions like that. Um, I, here's, here's how I would respond to that. I honestly don't know. I don't know. You might have expected somebody who speaks about the Bible to say, well, it's definitely all about us, (laughs) and there's nothing else out there. The reality is I don't know. What I do know from what I believe is at least where we are now, God has spoken to us in this way. If there's anything else out there, if there is some other creation if we understand what we can see and touch and feel as being formed by God, then we would say, I'll leave that for God to deal with that creation in whatever way He decides to deal with it. But what I do know is I've got to respond with what I think He says to us. So, in again, I hope you didn't think that was a politician's answer where I ask a question and didn't really give you an answer. But I can't give you an answer because I really, really don't know. But I think I know how we need to think in response. No, that's a, okay, that's good. So let's move on. That was a great question. Uh, thank you for that. I think it really gives us a little bit of an idea of how this can work. So don't hesitate. The anonymous little tick box 
means that there's no issues, we can't see where it's come from or anything like that. As we think about God, one of the interesting things that I see is that the idea of deity, the idea of God, is written into our human existence. That's fascinating, isn't it? When we look back over time into ancient civilizations, no matter where we go, no matter how far back we go, no matter how far or wide we go, every civilization that we understand to have existed has some concept of beyond us, outside of us, some concept of the spirit world, some concept of the unseen, some concept of God. Everywhere that we go, from the idea of a life force where we are all part of it and yet somehow uh, separated in this mortal body until we are released into it, to the idea of a personal God. Many different ideas. Gods who are violent towards humanity, gods who are loving towards humanity. We go back over time and again and again we see this mark written into our being as humans, which says we look to something outside of ourselves. I want to take you to um, uh, the middle of the last century, uh, because there were some uh, people groups, civilizations, whatever we want to however we want to describe it, uh, responses which tried to wipe out the idea of God. As I was growing up, I was acutely aware of the um, communist states, which were actively trying to wipe out any idea of God. What I find interesting in that is two things. Firstly, God, the idea of God is still there in that community. Even though you're trying to wipe it out, it's still there. And secondly, what we see is that as those particular states and ideas have fallen apart, what has actually endured is the idea of God. It's as though we can't get away from, away from it as human beings. We can't separate ourselves from it. Civilizations might oppose it, and yet it continues to rise up. We cannot escape from it. You think we could perhaps grow out of it? Uh, many, many of you, I'm sure, have got broadband at home. Hope you've been able to get on our broadband. Took me a little bit to get on the broadband. Um, you've got to, if you've got to forget your network, if, you've, if you're having problems, there's a tip. Forget your network, then you can rejoin. What about the idea of growing up out of God. We think our, well, maybe, you, maybe you're one of those who's just kind of frustrated, like the, the uh, Talk Talk advert or Sky advert, really frustrated with your broadband connection because it's so slow. Uh, generally, it's not bad here, is it? We are, we are snail's pace compared to South Korea. South Korea is one of the most technologically advanced countries in the world. It is amazing, and yet at the same time, in that technically advanced country, we find that Christianity 
is exploding as a system of belief. It is growing exponentially. So even when we embrace the the highest levels of technological advancement as human beings, we still find ourselves looking to God. Let's get right back to us. Let's make it personal. That's all out there, isn't it? We might decide one of the problems that I have with any idea of God is, to be honest, it's mythical. That might be your thoughts. I treat the idea of God as something like the stories of Winnie the Pooh or the Tooth Fairy. Or it's a crutch to get through life. Or it's the stuff I remember from when I was a kid until I grew up. If that's where you are, I'm really thankful that you've come along this afternoon. I hope you'll stick with us on this journey over these next few weeks because that's precisely the kind of conversation that I think we need to have. Is God a mythical figure that we can grow out of? I also think, however, that there are many of us who decide, I don't, I don't want to think about it now because life is really exciting uh, and I've got all of these things that are going on and this, this stuff to do, uh, but don't, I don't want to think about it. Why don't we want to think about it? I want to suggest to you that maybe one of the reasons why we don't want to think about it is because we know the implications. We know that as soon as we cross over that line, we know that God is then going to make demands of us. Uh, and sometimes it's easier. Do you remember when you were, do you, do you have home, did you have homework in school when you were growing up? I was an absolute shocker when it came to homework. I was absolutely shocking. I just kind of closed my books, pretend it wasn't there, but it didn't go away. Uh, the repercussions of not doing it were definitely real. Uh, it's real, but we want to shut it off, pretend that it doesn't exist. Another response we might say is that, well, to be honest, all roads lead to God. I, I understand and I hear that very often. It's as though we take a position outside of all of the faiths and we say, actually the reality is all of those, it's like different pathways up a mountain and, and we all get to God, we stand outside of it. I want to, with the greatest of respect, suggest some thoughts to you in response to that which is perceived to be a tolerant view. The first thing I would say is I think that that is actually one of the most intolerant responses that we might have because it, what it says is I stand outside of all of you religious people and I have a better idea than all of you because the reality is and the dignity that I would want to give to all of the other faiths is the dignity that we do disagree it, it's, it's okay that we do disagree. It's right that we should disagree because it is such an important subject. It's right for us to be able to enter into discussion and we do disagree. But to say that I can stand outside of it and say that all of you 
you kind of get little bits of it, but you don't get the whole thing because I can see from the outside that they all lead to God. Might be something that you've never considered before is actually ultimately disrespectful to every faith. That's a really challenging point. Uh, And maybe something which you might not have been able to type a question quickly enough for that, but uh, please do respond. Have we got anything that we might want to just throw up on the screen? I'm really thankful for that question. It's full of complicated language. Um, If you were in science at school, uh, you were understanding about things. You you got knowledge. Uh, And what that question is asking is, if God knew everything, if He was omniscient, He knew all things, why did He create man if He knew we were going to sin? Can I... I can't answer that in one sense. I can never answer that. (laughs) In another sense, it's a really good question, and it's something that we definitely need to come back to. So we will come back to that question. But I want to encourage whoever has asked that question that that is actually right at the heart of the issue of God and us. It's about our relationship with God. Why did He do it? So we will come back to that question. In fact, we'll make a note of it, and I think it probably would be in, I think from memory, it's about week three, we'll come back to it. But if you want to grab a hold of me and say, I need an answer tonight, grab me at the end. Thank you. Anything else that we're going to get up there? Wow. Wow. All the advances in science in conflict with the concept of the God described in the simplistic creation story in the Bible? That's a good question. Again, it's something that we could spend the whole evening answering that question. Uh, I think one of the things that I would suggest to you is that when we, when, whenever we read the Bible, we're always reading it in the, in the way that it was written at certain times in history, to certain people. So certain people are receiving this message, they're receiving the story. This story of creation, which we see in Genesis 1 to 3, we see that it is written and gathered together and, uh, and communicated particularly uh, through God's people as they were coming into contact for the first occasions with uh, other belief systems. What does Genesis 1 to 3 actually say? That might sound a bit obvious as a question. You might say, well, it tells us all the details about, about creation. I want to just step back from that because there are three views that I would love to go through with folks at some point. But the big, big answer is this. Number one, Genesis 1 to 3 says that God made us. However that worked out, however that happened, we can talk about that separately. Big headline issue is that God made us. Second big headline issue 
is that he made us with purpose. Why is that important? It's important because it was written to people who were coming into contact with the Canaanite ideas of the creation of the world. And the Canaanite ideas of the creation of the world were that God, the, the, the creation of the world was the two gods, Marduk and another one who I can't quite remember, who were in battle with each other and to show superiority of one over the other, uh, the world was created as a kind of meaningless exercise. You are meaningless, was the message that the Canaanite God said. It was all about me displaying my power. What we actually see, and what the message of Genesis 1 to 3 is, is that you are made with purpose. And God said that it was really good. So, I, I can't, so when we come to the questions of science, I think we can apply that with thought to the issues of Genesis 1 to 3. I think we can apply it with our understanding of how our, our knowledge of the world is growing and developing, but we can never take away those key ideas that God has made us with a purpose because He has created a world that He loves. We can get a bit deeper, but we haven't got time. But thank you for the question. If you think I haven't answered it sufficiently, uh, we'll come back to it. We need to move on. Um, all roads lead to God was where we had got to. What that does acknowledge is that there are different ideas of God. The Christian faith grew up in a time when there were lots and lots of different ideas of God. This is nothing new for the Christian faith. But if we ask the question, is God real? There's another rider on the back of that, which is, if there is a God, which version of God is true? <laughs> That's, that, that kind of comes out of it. If we get to the point where we say, okay, well, it might be real, of all the ideas of God that surround us, which one is the true version? Because what we've just acknowledged is it is really good for us to be upfront and honest and say we actually do disagree and that there are implications to those disagreements. So which one is true? Well, in the light of that question and in the first comment that I made, which was that I can't categorically prove to you. What I can do is present to you the God that the Bible describes. So that's where we are heading. This is the God of the Bible described to us. And our response then is to say, of all of those different options, how do I respond to that God of the Bible? The first thing that we see is that the God of the Bible is described, not surprisingly, the God of the Bible is described to us in the Bible. Uh, there's two parts to the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and the key kind of fulcrum point, the, the, the tipping point between the two is the life of Jesus. They are, however, one continuous story. It's not as though um, here's all this stuff back then and then we start a whole new story. 
Actually, the story is a seamless thread of God describing Himself uh, to us. The God of the Bible is described to us in those two sections. And I want to just pick up on one of those books. We're going to spend a bit of time through this series looking at uh, one of those books, and it's the, the Gospel of Mark. It's a book that Mark wrote. I am not a historian. Uh, it's, not, it's not my interest, but it's interesting, isn't it? History is an interesting subject. Theories of history are an interesting subject. One of the things that we do know is that we gain our understanding of the past by going back to the past and gathering data from the past. It might sound surprising to you if the Bible is new to you, but the book of Mark, which is one of the gospel accounts of the life of Jesus, Mark did not write it deciding, I'm going to contribute chapter 2 of the New Testament. That's not how it was written. He didn't sit down and uh, he wasn't given the job uh, of writing book 2 in the New Testament to add on to the previous 39 books of the Old Testament. That was very Liverpool, that, wasn't it, then? Books. Sorry about that. We'll come back to Yorkshire. Um, he wrote it as an account of the life of Jesus. Just a straightforward account. He wrote it because uh, he understood the significance of Jesus and he wrote it as a historical account. When did he write it? Well, all of, the, uh, all of those who've, who've kind of really got their head around it suggest that he wrote it somewhere between A.D. 55 and A.D. 70. Jesus died uh, in A.D. 33. So it's just, relatively speaking, it is a few years after the life of Jesus. What he actually wrote was a historical account. We gain our understanding of the past, we know what happened in history by going back to accounts. Uh, I'll just pick up on two historical books that have formed an important part of our understanding of the ancient world. Uh, there's a book called, or a, a scroll called, Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian Wars. It's a really important historical book where we've gathered significant historical data of what happened in the ancient world. What's significant? And why do we look to that? Why do we believe it to be of interest? We look to it because we've got ancient copies of that original writing. Actually, there are eight copies. So we can go and we can take those. They're in different libraries around the world. You know, the white gloves, we kind of carefully open them. Why? Because they are really important ancient documents. And we open them up and we construct from those various accounts uh, a picture of what happened in the ancient world. Eight of them. Do we question them? No, we don't question them, and rightly so. 
because we believe them to be ancient records from the past. There's another one which is Tacitus Histories. Again, a really significant source of ancient information. We have two ancient copies in existence. And we use them to gather uh, a picture of what happened in the ancient world. What about Mark as a historical ancient book? Here's, Here's some amazing statistics. When it comes to Mark, we have 5,000 ancient copies in Greek. We have 10,000 ancient copies in Latin, which was the language of the Roman world. 15,000 ancient copies. What does that say to us? I think it says to us that in those first few years of the writing of Mark, It was seen to be so significant, it was seen to be reliable, that it was copied like crazy. It was sent all over the place. There were many, many, we have still countless, well not countless, 15,000 is the number, but compared to two, it's countless ancient copies. In other words, the ancients understood the book of Mark to be a historical record of the events of the life of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. What does it say in Mark chapter 1, verse 1? The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. I love Mark. He's really straightforward. He writes as a historian but he, he doesn't sort of build us up in a storyline plot line that in the last chapter or the last few paragraphs or sentences, he reveals the great kind of climactic piece of information. Um, so you read novels, I'm sure some of you read novels, and you get to the end, sometimes that can be a bit of a letdown, can't it? Sometimes it's amazing, you get to the end, it's like, whoa, I never saw that coming. Mark is right up front. He tells you straight off the bat, first verse, this is what it's about. He says, this is an account effectively, and it's good news. It's good news talking about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of of God. I just want to draw out three things. Firstly, he says, in language which would have been culturally understood, that Jesus is connected to the 39 books of the Old Testament. He uses a word there, Messiah, or the Christ. Same word in two different languages. He says Jesus is actually spoken about in those previous 39 books. This is not something new. It's the fulfillment of everything that went before. Now we continue the story. The Messiah that's been promised right through those 39 books is Jesus. That's the first thing that he says. But what he also says is this, that God, or Jesus, 
It is not just the promised one, but he makes this remarkable, outrageous claim. He says that Jesus is also God. I'll just let that sink in for a minute. He says that Jesus is God, the Messiah, the Son of God. It's in a massive claim that he makes. What does that say about the God of the Bible? Firstly, it says this, that the God that we can understand is understood through the physical presence of Jesus. That's how we understand God, at least the God of the Bible. God isn't some hidden away concept, some idea out there. God has become physically present with us. It is the most outrageous claim if it is untrue. And that's the journey, really, that we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks. He's right out there. But secondly, or thirdly, what's clear is that that God is understandable. There's a sense in which we can never, never, never begin to understand fully God. But at least what we do need to understand, we can understand through Jesus. He's here with us, Mark says. He's made made Himself present, but He is also a God that wants to communicate with us. He wants to communicate. He has reached out to us. He has become present in the world. So, the God that we have, the God that we see in the Bible, we see in Jesus. So, the question, is God real? Well, the Christian faith makes this concept, presents this concept to us, that God is real Not because he's an idea that we can argue about, but because we can see him. That's amazing, isn't it? He is real, not because he's invisible, but because he's visible. That's where it starts. I'm just going to see if we've got anything to, any questions to close with. We'll close with a couple of questions. Is it arrogant to presume that our understanding of God is the understanding of God? If I can just kind of... I get that question. It's a really important question. I think there's two things that I would respond with. One is I think all that we can do is humbly present the idea that God says in the Bible that I am here in present form. Our detailed understanding of how that all works out, that it would be arrogant for us to say it is absolutely this, it is absolutely that, it is absolutely the other. And it would also be arrogant for us to uh, not give dignity to other thoughts and ideas. 
but it would be weak if all of us were forced into a position where we were never able to say, this is what I believe. We've all got to be able to say, I believe in something, haven't we? Is it arrogant to say that we believe in something at the cost of something else? I don't think that is arrogance. I think it's difference, but it mustn't be arrogance for us to be able to say, I believe in one thing and not another thing. And the the Bible as we see it presented to us says clearly in Mark chapter 1 verse 1 that the God who we see is the God who made Himself present with us. That is, I, I don't think it's arrogant for me to say that's what the Bible says because that's what the Bible says. I do understand that. I do understand that one of the problems of the church of the past is there has been a shocking arrogance in the way that we have portrayed things. I hope, I really hope, that we've tried our best not to be arrogant, but tried to be clear uh, and to say, well, at least this is what I believe the Bible says about God. If, If my answer has troubled you, please grab hold of me at the end and uh, we can chat a little bit more. Is there one more? Not all cultures have heard of God. Can God still be just when not everyone knows about Him and could miss out on heaven because of this? That is a really good question. It gets us quite a way down our journey, further down the line, um, just to kind of put a pause and say... I am, I am not convinced that the Bible makes it really clear what the destiny of those who have never heard of Jesus is. I'm not clear that the Bible is absolutely, that's what it is, that they're lost, having not heard of Jesus. There are a few verses in the Bible that suggest that there is a sense of the divine which can cause a a desire to respond to God outside of the knowledge of Jesus, which is important to God. What I would say is that the Bible does say that those impossible questions for us to understand and could come to terms with is part of our exercise of faith. I don't know the answer to that. But I do believe that the God of the Bible as presented is a loving God, a compassionate God. But I also believe that we're a really messed up race as well. So we're going to, that's a really great question. I'm wondering whether we can flag that question and kind of come back to that over the next few weeks because I think it is perhaps one of those that is really important. I hope this afternoon has been helpful to you. I'm going to close with a prayer, uh, and then we can um, have another coffee, carry on chatting, chat to me at the end if you want. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity for us to investigate and think about the idea of your, your person, who you are, your presence with us, 
Um, I pray that what we've discussed might have been helpful. If any of the things, Father, which I've said have been unhelpful, uh, I pray that you would take it away from our minds because when all's said and done, this is a failing, weak human being who is communicating incredible truths. So we pray for your Spirit to do good work in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.